Chapter 5, Part 2 of A Chronicle of 1812. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Lawrence. A Chronicle of 1812 by William Wood. Chapter 5, Part 2. 1813. The Beaver Dams, Lake Erie, and Chateauguay. Bolstler's 600 had only 10 miles to go in a straight line, but all the thickets, woods, creeks, streams, and swamps were closely beset by a body of expert, persistent Indians, who gradually increased from 250 to 400 men. The Americans became discouraged and bewildered, and when Fitzgibbon rode up at the head of his redcoats, they were ready to give in. The British posts were all in excellent touch with each other, and de Haren arrived in time to receive the actual surrender. He was closely followed by the second Lincoln militia under Colonel Clark, and these again by Colonel Bissop with the whole of the advance guard. But it was the Indians alone who won the fight, as Fitzgibbon generously acknowledged. Not a shot was fired on our side by any but the Indians, they beat the American detachment into a state of terror, and the only share I claim is taking advantage of a favorable moment to offer protection from the tomahawk and scalping knife. June was a lucky month for the British at sea as well as on the land, and its glorious first, so-called after Howe's victory nineteen years before, now became doubly glorious in a way which had a special interest for Canada. The American frigate Chesapeake was under orders to attack British supply ships entering Canadian waters, and the victorious British frigate, Shannon, was taken out of action and into a Canadian port by a young Canadian in the Royal Navy. The Chesapeake had a new captain, Lawrence, with new young officers. She carried fifty more men than the British frigate, Shannon, but many of her ship's company were new to her on recommissioning in May, and some were comparatively untrained for service on board a man-of-war. The frigates themselves were practically equal in size and armament, but Captain Broke had been in continuous command of the Shannon for seven years, and had trained her crew into the utmost perfection of naval gunnery. The vessels met off Boston in full view of many thousands of spectators. Not one British shot flew high. Every day in the Shannon's seven years of preparation told in that fight of only fifteen minutes, and when Broke led his boarders over the Chesapeake side, her fate had been sealed already. The stars and stripes were soon replaced by the Union Jack. Then, with Broke severely wounded and his first lieutenant killed, the command fell on Lieutenant Wallace, who sailed both vessels into Halifax. This young Canadian, afterwards known as Admiral of the Fleet, Sir Provo Wallace, lived to become the longest of all human links between the past and present of the Navy. He was by far the last survivor of those officers who were specially exempted from technical retirement on account of having held any ship or fleet command during the great war that ended on the field of Waterloo. He was born before Napoleon had been heard of. He went through a battle before the death of Nelson. He outlived Wellington by forty years. His name stood on the active list for all but the final decade of the 19th century, and, as an honored centenarian, 
He is vividly remembered by many who were still called young a century after the battle that brought him into fame. The summer campaign on the Niagara frontier ended with three minor British successes. Fort Slosser was surprised on July 5th. On the 11th, Bissop lost his life in destroying Black Rock, and on August 24, the Americans were driven in under the guns of Fort George. After this, there was a lull, which lasted throughout the autumn. Down by the Montreal frontier, there were three corresponding British successes. On June 3, Major Taylor of the 100th captured two American gunboats, the Growler and the Eagle, which had come to attack Ile-aux-Noix in the Richelieu River, and renamed them the Broke and the Shannon. Early in August, Captains Spring and Everard of the Navy and Colonel Murray, with 900 soldiers, raided Lake Champlain. They destroyed the barracks, yard, and stores at Plattsburgh, and sent the American militia flying home. But a still more effective blow was struck on the opposing side of Lake Champlain, at Burlington, where General Hampton was preparing the right wing of his new army of invasion. Stores, equipment, barracks, and armaments were destroyed to such an extent that Hampton's preparations were set back until late in the autumn. The left wing of the same army was at Sackett's Harbor, under Dearborn's successor, General Wilkinson, whose plan was to take Kingston, go down the St. Lawrence, meet Hampton, who was to come up from the south, and then make a joint attack with him on Montreal. In September, the scene of action shifted to the west, where the British were trying to keep the command of Lake Erie, while the Americans were trying to wrest it from them. Captain Oliver Perry, a first-rate American naval officer of only 28, was at Presqu'île, now Erie, completing his flotilla. He had his troubles, of course, especially with the militia garrison, who would not do their proper tour of duty. I tell the boys to go, but the boys won't go, was the only report forthcoming from one of several worthless colonels. A still greater trouble for Perry was getting his vessels over the bar. This had to be done without any guns on board, and with the cumbersome aid of camels, which are any kind of air tank made fast to the sides low down, in order to raise the hull as much as possible. But, lucky for Perry, his opponent, Captain Barclay, of the Royal Navy, an energetic and capable young officer of 32, was called upon to face worse troubles still. Barclay was, indeed, the first to get afloat, but he had to give up the blockade of Presqu'île, and so let Perry out, because he had the rawest of crews, the scantiest of equipment, and nothing left to eat. Then, when he ran back to Amherstburg, he found Proctor also facing a state of semi-starvation, while thousands of Indian families were clamoring for food. Thus there was no choice but either to fight or starve, for there was not the slightest chance of replenishing stores unless the line of the lake was clear. So Barclay sailed out with his six little British vessels, armed by the odds and ends of whatever ordnance could be spared from Amherstburg, and manned by almost any crews but sailors. Even the flagship, Detroit, had only ten real seamen, all told. Ammunition was likewise very scarce, and so defective that the guns had to be fired by the flash of a pistol. Perry also had a makeshift flotilla, manned partly by drafts from Harrison's army, but, on the whole, the odds in his favor were fairly shown by the number of vessels in the respective flotillas nine American against the British six. 
Barclay had only thirty miles to make in a direct southeasterly line from Amherstburg to reach Perry in Put-in Bay in the Bass Islands, where, on the morning of September 10, the opposing forces met. The battle raged for two hours at the very closest quarters till Perry's flagship, Lawrence, struck to Barclay's own Detroit. But Perry had previously left the Lawrence for the fresh Niagara, and now he bore down on the battered Detroit, which had meanwhile fallen foul of the only other sizable British vessel, the Queen Charlotte. This was fatal for Barclay. The whole British flotilla surrendered after a desperate resistance and an utterly disabling loss. From that time on to the end of the war, Lake Erie remained completely under American control. Proctor could hardly help seeing that he was doomed to give up the whole Lake Erie region, but he lingered and was lost. While Harrison was advancing with overwhelming numbers, Proctor was still trying to decide when and how to abandon Amherstburg. Then, when he did go, he carried with him an inordinate amount of baggage, and he retired so slowly that Harrison caught and crushed him near Morbanian Town, beside the Thames, on the 5th of October. Harrison had 3,000 exultant Americans in action. Proctor had barely a 1,000 worn-out, dispirited men, more than half of them Indians, under Tecumseh. The redcoats, spread out in single rank in open order, were ridden down by Harrison's cavalry, backed by the mass of his infantry. The Indians on the inland flank stood longer and fought with greater determination against five times their numbers, till Tecumseh fell. Then they broke and fled. This was their last great fight, and Tecumseh, their last great leader. The scene now shifts once more to the Montreal frontier, which was being threatened by the converging forces of Hampton from the south and Wilkinson from the west. Each had about 7,000 men, and their common objective was the island of Montreal. Hampton crossed the line at Odletown on September the 20th, but he presently moved back again, and it was not till October 21 that he began his definite attack by advancing down the left bank of the Chateauguay, after opening communication with Wilkinson, who was still near Sackett's Harbor. Hampton naturally expected to brush aside all the opposition that could be made by the few hundred British between him and the St. Lawrence. But de Salaberry, the commander of the British advanced posts, determined to check him near La Fourche, where several little tributaries of the Chateauguay made a succession of good positions, if strengthened by abatis and held by trained defenders. The British force was very small when Hampton began his slow advance, but Red George MacDonnell marched to help it just in time. MacDonnell was commanding a crack corps of French Canadians, all picked from the best select-embodied militia, and now, at the end of six months of extra service, as good as a battalion of regulars. He had hurried to Kingston when Wilkinson had threatened it from Sackett's Harbour. Now he was urgently needed at Chateauguay. "'When can you start?' asked Prevost who was himself on the point of leaving Kingston for Chateauguay. "'Directly the men have finished their dinners, sir.' "'Then follow me as quick as you can,' said Prevost, as he stepped on board his vessel. There were 210 miles to go. A day was lost collecting boats enough for this sudden emergency. Another day was lost en route by a gale so terrific that even the French-Canadian voyageurs were unable to face it. The rapids where so many of Amherst's men had been drowned in 1760, were at their very worst, and the final forty miles 
had to be made overland by marching all night through dense forest and along a particularly difficult trail. Yet MacDonnell got into touch with the Salaburi long before Privot, to whom he had the satisfaction of reporting later in the day, All correct and present, sir, not one man missing. The advanced British forces under de Salaburi were now, on October 25, the eve of battle, occupying the left or north bank of the Chateauguay, fifteen miles south of the Cascade Rapids of the St. Lawrence, twenty-five miles southwest of Conagua, and thirty-five miles southwest of Montreal. Immediately in rear of these men, under de la Salbury, stood Macdonnell's command, while in more distant support, nearer to Montreal, stood various posts under General de Watteville, with whom Prevost spent that night, and most of the 26th, the day on which the battle was fought. As Hampton came on with his cumbrous American thousands, de Salabry felt justifiable confidence in his own well-disciplined French-Canadian hundreds. He and his brothers were officers in the Imperial Army. His voltigeurs were regulars. The supporting fencibles were also regulars and of ten years' standing. MacDonnell's men were practically regulars. The so-called select militia present had been permanently embodied for eighteen months, and the only real militiamen on the scene of action, most of whom never came under fire at all, had already been twice embodied for service in the field. The British total present was 1,590, of whom less than a quarter were militiamen and Indians. But the whole firing line comprised no more than 460, of whom only 66 were militiamen and only 22 were Indians. The Indian total was about one-tenth of the whole. The English-speaking total was about one-twentieth. It is therefore perfectly right to say that the Battle of Chateauguay was practically fought and won by French-Canadian regulars against American odds of four to one. De Salaberry's position was peculiar. The head of his little column faced the head of Hampton's big column on a narrow front, bounded on his own left by the river Chateauguay, and on his own right by woods, into which Hampton was afraid to send his untrained men. But crossing a right-angled bend of the river, beyond de Salaberry's left front, was a ford, while in rear of de Salaberry's own column was another ford which Hampton thought he could easily take with fifteen hundred men under Purdy. As he had no idea of MacDonnell's march, and no doubt of being able to crush de Salaberry's other troops between his own five thousand attacking from the front and Purdy's fifteen hundred attacking from the rear. Purdy advanced overnight, crossing to the right flank of the Chateauguay by the ford clear of de Salaberry's front, and made toward the ford in de Salaberry's rear. But his men lost their way in the dark and found themselves, not in rear of, but opposite to, and on the left flank of, de Salaberry's column in the morning. They drove in two of de Salaberry's companies, which were protecting his left flank on the right, or what was now Purdy's side of the river. But they were checked by a third, which MacDonnell sent forward, across the rear ford, at the same time that he occupied this rear ford himself. Purdy and Hampton had now completely lost touch with one another. Purdy was astounded to see MacDonnell's main body of redcoats behind the rear ford. He paused, waiting for support from Hampton, who was still behind the front ford. Hampton paused, waiting for him to take the rear ford, now occupied by MacDonnell. 
De Salisbury mounted a huge tree stump and at once saw his opportunity. Holding back Hampton's crowded column with his own front, which fought under cover of his first abate, he wheeled the rest of his men into line on the left and thus took Purdy in flank. MacDonnell was out of range behind the rear ford, but he played his part by making his buglers sound the advance from several different quarters while his men joined by de salaberry's militiamen and by the indians in the bush cheered vociferously and raised the war-whoop this was too much for purdy's fifteen hundred they broke in confusion ran away from the river into the woods under a storm of bullets fired into each other and finally disappeared hampton's attack on de salaberry's first abate then came to a full stop after which the whole american army retired beaten from the field Ten days after Chateauguay, dilatory Wilkinson, tired of waiting for defeat at Hampton, left the original rendezvous at French Creek, fifty miles below Sackett's Harbor. Like Dearborn in 1812, he began his campaign just as the season was closing. But, again, like Dearborn, he had the excuse of being obliged to organize his army in the middle of the war. Four days later again, on November the 9th, Brown, the successful defender of Sackett's Harbor against Prevost's attack in May, was landed at Williamsburg on the Canadian side with 2,000 men to clear the 20 miles down to Cornwall opposite the rendezvous at St. Regis, where Wilkinson expected to find Hampton ready to join him for the combined attack on Montreal. But Brown had to reckon with Dennis, the first defender of Queenston, who now commanded the little garrison of Cornwall and who disputed every inch of the way by breaking the bridges and resisting each successive advance till Brown was compelled to deploy for attack. Two days were taken up with these harassing maneuvers, during which another 2,000 Americans were landed at Williamsburg under Boyd, who immediately found himself still more harassed in rear than Brown had been in front. This new British force in Boyd's rear was only a 1,000 strong, but, as it included every human element engaged in the defense of Canada, it has a quite peculiar interest of its own. Afloat, it included blue jackets of the Royal Navy, men of the Provincial Marine, French-Canadian voyageurs, and Anglo-Canadian boatmen from the trading posts, all under a first-rate fighting seaman, Captain Mulcaster, R.N. Ashore, under a good regimental leader, Colonel Morrison, whose chief staff officer was Harvey, of Stony Creek renown, it included imperial regulars, Canadian regulars of both races, French-Canadian and Anglo-Canadian militiamen, and a party of Indians. Early on the 11th, Brown had arrived at Cornwall with his 2,000 Americans. Wilkinson was staring down from Williamsburg in boats with 3,000 more, and Boyd was starting down ashore with 1,800. But Mulcaster's vessels pressed in on Wilkinson's rear, while Morrison pressed in on Boyd's. Wilkinson then ordered Boyd to turn about and drive off Morrison, while he hurried his own men out of reach of Mulcaster, whose armed vessels could not follow down the rapids. Boyd thereupon attacked Morrison, and a stubborn fight ensued at Chrysler's farm. The field was of the usual type, woods on one flank, water on the other, and a more or less flat clearing in the center. Boyd tried hard to drive his wedge in between the British and the river, but Morrison foiled him in maneuver, and the 800 British stood fast against their 1,800 enemies all along the line. Boyd then withdrew, having lost 400 men 
and Morrison's remaining six hundred effectives slept on their hard-won ground. Next morning, the energetic Morrison resumed his pursuit, but the campaign against Montreal was already over. Wilkinson had found that Hampton had started back for Lake Champlain while the battle was in progress, so he landed at St. Regis, just inside his own country, and went into winter quarters at French Mills on the Salmon River. In December, the scene of strife changed back again to the Niagara, where the American commander, McClure, decided to evacuate Fort George. At dusk on the 10th, he ordered 400 women and children to be turned out of their homes at Newark into the biting midwinter cold, and then burnt the whole settlement down to the ground. If he had intended to hold the position, he might have been justified in burning Newark, under more humane conditions, because this village undoubtedly interfered with the defensive fire of Fort George. But, as he was giving up Fort George, his act was an entire wanton deed of shame. Meanwhile, the new British general, Gordon Drummond, second in ability to Brock alone, was hurrying to the Niagara front. He was preceded by Colonel Murray, who took possession of Fort George on the 12th, the day McClure crossed the Niagara River. Murray at once made a plan to take the American Fort Niagara opposite, and Drummond at once approved it for immediate execution. On the night of the 18th, 600 men were landed on the American side three miles up the river. At four the next morning, Murray led them down to the fort, rushing the sentries and pickets by the way, with the bayonet in dead silence. He then told off two hundred men to take a bastion, at the same time that he was to lead the other four hundred straight through the main gate, which he knew would soon be open to let the reliefs pass out. Everything worked to perfection. When the reliefs came out, they were immediately charged and bayoneted, as were the first astonished men off-duty who ran out of their quarters to see what the matter was. A stiff hand-to-hand -hand fight followed, but every American attempt to form was instantly broken up, and presently the whole place surrendered. Drummond, who was delighted with such an excellent beginning, took care to underline the four significant words referring to the enemy's killed and wounded, all with the bayonet. This was done in no mere vulgar spirit of bravado, still less in abominable bloody-mindedness. It was a soldierly recognition of a particularly gallant feat of arms, carried out with such conspicuously good discipline that its memory is cherished, even to the present day, by the one hundredth, afterwards raised again as the Royal Canadians, now known as the Prince of Wales' Leinster Regiment. A facsimile of Drummond's underlined orders is one of the most highly honored souvenirs in the officers' mess. Not a moment was lost in following up this splendid feat of arms. The Indians drove the American militia out of Lewiston, which the advancing redcoats burnt to the ground. Fort Slosser next fell, then Black Rock, and finally Buffalo. Each was laid in ashes. Thus, before 1813 ended, the whole American side of the Niagara was nothing but one long, bare line of blackened desolation, with the sole exception of Fort Niagara, which remained secure in British hands until the war was over. End of chapter 5, part 2. Recording by David Lawrence in Brampton, Ontario, October 2008.